We've had quite a week around here with the um, reading of God's Word. We finished the entire Bible in about 80 hours. Uh, dozens and dozens of different people reading in 30-minute time segments. Um, uh, dozens more watching through live stream. And, uh, and I've had so many of you make comments about... Um, how powerful this, this week was and, and how you experienced it both being present here and, and through live stream. Um, you know, when you, when you read your Bible by yourself, often I think we tend to read silently. But if you're like me, reading silently allows your mind to wander more easily um, but when you read the Word of God aloud, it requires your brain to stay engaged with what you're reading. And so I think many of you experienced uh, this week as you read aloud uh, exactly how that felt. And uh, I just want to encourage you, even when you read at home, uh, to read the Word of God aloud not only helps your brain to stay connected and focused, um, but it lets the enemy uh, hear the very thing he hates to hear most of all. And so I, I think that um, this was a powerful event, and I'm, I'm grateful for the participation. Even as we went over our original time estimate, uh, we had no problem. I mean, people were, were standing in line to, to fill in those closing time slots, and I, I'm, I'm grateful for uh, the way you participated and, and the way this unfolded. It was a, it was a tremendous event. Um, I had several people say, now next year when we do this, I said, well, we'll see, we'll see. Christmas is approaching. You have probably decorated at your house and somewhere in your house uh, may be a nativity scene. And as you assembled that nativity scene, you set it up one piece at a time. If you do it like we do it, um, Mary and Joseph and the baby are the final pieces that you put into place, sort of as a, a recognition that that is the center of everything else. The wise men are unnecessary. The shepherds are uh, superfluous. The, uh, the, the animals are, are just backdrop. It all revolves around a baby, but around that baby, there was a mother and a father. Joseph is often, I've called him the forgotten man of Christmas because he gets lost. It's almost like if Joseph is left out of the nativity set, nobody really notices. But this morning, I want to talk about Mary. I want us to look at the mother of Christmas. It's interesting when we come to the topic of Mary... It's, div it's more difficult to preach this, this lesson than you might imagine because of all the baggage that is associated with her. The Roman Catholic Church made her the divine queen of heaven and virtually canceled her humanity. Protestants, in a reaction to that, have so emphasized her humanity that they feared to speak of her as a significant part of God's redemptive intention. We've become reluctant to speak of Mary at all, which makes her the victim of circumstances beyond her control that have obscured her character. She's a significant part of the Christmas story. And so 
not replacing Jesus in any way, I want us to look at the single person who was closest to the events that we spend so much time pondering. And she was close to those events from the very beginning to the very end. The worship of Mary is a relic of ancient paganism. Let me just give you a rundown. In the ancient world, there was a, the goddess Artemis, or also known as Diana, who was worshipped in Ephesus. Ephesus was uh, a center of the worship of this goddess. In fact, the temple of Diana was one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. That allegiance to Diana was transferred in some ways to Mary when paganism was outlawed by the Roman Empire in the fourth century. Likewise, Isis was a goddess of Egypt who was known as the great virgin and the mother of God. You say, well, how are there such parallels? Listen, um, the enemy has been trying to counterfeit the true story of redemption since the garden. But in the 8th century, the Roman Catholic Church established the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary in order to protect her holiness and her sinlessness, uh, a well-meant doctrine that is not biblical. In the Middle Ages, they declared Mary to be wor a worthy object of devotion, and at that time, she began to rival Christ. Great shrines to Mary were built uh, across Europe as she became the church's greatest intercessor. Prayers were offered to Mary, uh, thinking that uh, nobody could get her son to do anything quite like a mother could. By the time we get to the age of chivalry, she had become a romantic obsession. Many of the Gothic cathedrals were built as trophies to the ever young and ever beautiful Mary. And in 1854, Pius IX established the doctrine of immaculate conception, which further took Mary out of the realm of normal humanity and turned her into a fairy story. Phillips Brooks penned a Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, and in that carol he notes regarding Jesus that the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. This is true of Mary as well. Her Christmas experience her role as the mother of Christmas is significant to help us find how Christmas provides a resp our response to God's act of grace. I've entitled this lesson, The First Christmas Carol, because Mary sings a song. It's recorded for us in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And in that song, she is going to take us on a journey of of the story of the grace of God culminating in the coming of the Messiah, chosen to be placed in her, delivered through her as a part of God's plan. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be in several places, but I want us to, to find our way to this, uh, to this passage first. This is a song that she wrote after she finds out that she is unexpectedly expecting she makes her way to visit um, Elizabeth, the wife of Zechariah, and she pins this poem on that journey. 
Let me read from Luke chapter 1, verse 39, and set the stage for this, this story. It says, Now at this time Mary set out and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. You'll remember the story. Elizabeth was carrying John the Baptist, who would be born just months ahead of Jesus. Verse 42, and she cried out with a loud voice and said, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. This is Elizabeth saying, uh, already acknowledging before Jesus is even born that he is the Lord, that he is her Lord, and acknowledging that Mary was especially chosen to be a part of this plan. It's a powerful recognition. Just as a side note, one of the effective uh, conversation pieces that, that we have nowadays uh, because of the abortion debate, which is so common in our culture, um, is I ask people if Jesus was... Jesus before he was born. The Bible gives us every indication. Here is Elizabeth already calling him her Lord. If Jesus was Jesus before he was born, do not believe the lie that preborn babies are just a clump of cells. Mary is going to show us in this story how God maintains the continuity of his purposes. You see, the opening chapters of Luke, honestly, Luke 1 and 2, honestly read more like the Old Testament than the New Testament. One moves in the midst of the remnant that represents the very best of the Old Testament. You see, we are so used to considering the Pharisees in the New Testament as sort of the representatives of Judaism that we tend to dismiss all of Judaism as, as legalistic and, and burdensome and, and self-righteous. But while the Pharisees did have a distinctive presence in their generation, the fact is there were always people who represented the best of the Old Testament. They worshiped the true God. They understood that, that their relationship to him was about a heart matter. They brought sacrifices and they offered prayers. And most of all, they waited expectantly for the day that the promise would be kept, that the Messiah would come, that redemption would be provided, that the sacrifices would finally be fulfilled that's what we find here in the first two chapters of Luke. These are not Pharisees. This is a woman speaking of the, in Old Testament language, yearning for the coming of the gospel. Her poetic song that we see in verses 46 through 55 is filled. It's alive with Old Testament quotations and allusions. In fact, it reflects on passages that come from First and Second Samuel, from the book of Micah, from Psalms, from Job, from Isaiah, and even from Genesis. We call it in Latin the Magnificat, which is the first word of that first verse 
My soul exalts the Lord. The Latin word is magnificent. It means to celebrate, to, to offer praise. And in this song, we have themes drawn from the life of Sarah, the wife of Abraham, and Hannah, the mother of Samuel. Old Testament prophecy finished with Malachi. There were 400 years of silence as God didn't speak in a new and fresh way. And yet here is Mary involved in its renewal. We know from the first chapter of Matthew that Mary is a descendant of King David. And so as we approach the story of Mary as a part of Christmas, what we realize, this, this business of the continuity of God's purposes, uh, what I want you to see is that Mary is living proof of God's capacity to sustain his purposes across the ages. She is a part of the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. She is a descendant of David who received the promise that one of your descendants will be the Messiah, the king that will rule over Israel for all eternity. That period of silence, 400 years of the Jews wondering when the promises would finally be fulfilled, that silence is broken, and God broke it in the most extraordinary way. He didn't send another prophet. He didn't give them another king. He, he didn't, he didn't uh, uh, intervene in some sort of direct revelation. He became flesh and, and brought himself to be among us. Mary is the, is the part of that story that, that we should most identify with. She is the, con the, the completion of the continuity of God's purposes, but I want you to see in, in her life, she models a mosaic of human response. This is where Mary becomes like, or I start to say Mary becomes like the rest of us, but we become like her. Because all of us respond differently to God's purposes, and Mary mirrors those various responses. Let me, let me give you an example. Her, her words, her comments, her remarks are recorded for us seven times in the Gospels, and then she is silent. The first four of her remarks are related to Christmas. I want to, before we look at, at, at this song, I want to go back and, and see her first words. Look in the first chapter of, of Luke, uh, verse 34. In verse 34, before she goes to see Elizabeth, she is having an encounter with an angel. The angel comes and delivers the news that God has selected her to be the mother of the Messiah. He tells her that, um, that, that she will do this. And in verse 34, after hearing this news that she's going to receive uh, this uh, responsibility, this stewardship, verse 34 says, but Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Her first words spoken in the New Testament uh, are a question of confusion. How can this be since I'm a virgin? She raised the first objection ever to the incarnation, the central truth of God made flesh. How can it be? 2,000 years later, people still ask the question, how could God become flesh? How could such a thing be? She communicates our confusion 
when we have to pause and realize that the ways of God are different from the ways of man and that there are things that he calls us to accept by faith that just can't make sense in our finite mind. How can a virgin conceive and give birth? And yet going all the way back to the prophecies in the book of Isaiah, we were told 800 years before Mary that that's precisely how the story would unfold. Question of confusion. Look at verse 38, immediately before she goes to visit Elizabeth. Verse 38 says, And Mary said, Behold, the Lord's bondservant, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You see, if her first word was a question of confusion, her second word was an affirmation of submission. I find this fascinating. She doesn't really understand the answer that would solve her confusion. She just can't get her mind wrapped around it. But at the end of the day, rather than saying, I won't do anything that I don't understand, her response was, behold, the handmaiden of the Lord. In other words, it's a way of saying, look here and you will see a servant of the Lord, meaning whatever he wants to do with my life. I'm available to him. What an incredible testimony of faith. We talk about the faith of Job and, and Abraham, and, and, and we have the great heroes of, of the faith that, that we often point to, but there's not any greater faith to fa be found anywhere in the New Testament than this young, possibly teenage girl who is not able to explain anything that God has announced he's going to do through her, and yet her response is, I'm his servant. Whatever he wants to do with my life, he's free to do. What an extraordinary testimony. A question of confusion and affirmation of submission, but now we come to an act of compassion. We saw in verse 40 that we just read, it says, she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, we're not told what she said there. She visits her, her, her relative Elizabeth to share in the joy that only one woman can communicate to another. Here were two uh, pregnant women who were both stunned at the grace of God to put them in that position. Elizabeth, because she had not been able to conceive and Mary chosen in this special way, she immediately goes to Elizabeth so that they can communicate with each other in, in, a, in a shared experience that most of us will never fully understand. We don't know the words that she said, but the impact of the incarnation on her life was to turn her to service to other people. She goes and she puts herself in, in the presence of, of, of Elizabeth, and, and we don't know what she said, but, but the response was Elizabeth immediately accepting this news. There was no, there was no um, oh, you're pregnant and you're not married? Tell, let, let's really get to the bottom of this. Whatever she said, whatever she explained of her experience with the angel, Elizabeth, a woman by faith, immediately understood that God was up to something unheard of. And she said, you are carrying my Lord. There is an act of compassion there. 
in Mary's relationship with Elizabeth. But now we come to the song. I've called it a song of jubilation, this magnificent. Remember, quotations or allusions to First and Second Samuel, Psalms, Job, Isaiah, Genesis, and even the prophet Micah. Let me just read the first part of this, verses 46 through 49. And Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bondservant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. My soul exalts the Lord. These are her deepest, innermost feelings. She is putting to words what what is almost unspeakable. An angel has come to her, but she's not captivated by the angel. That in itself would have been a remarkable experience, but the angel was simply the messenger to deliver the really significant news that God was giving her a stewardship that every woman in Jewish history had looked at with longing to be the one who would carry and bear the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world. She says, my soul exalts the Lord. There is something deep inside of me that is trying to find words to communicate. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Listen, she has a proper understanding of her relation to God. She is not assuming as she was given a status for a thousand years later, she was not assuming some sort of uh, special role. She didn't see herself as the queen of heaven. She saw herself as a human being in need of salvation and God was her savior. And what he was choosing to do in her was for her benefit as well as everybody else. In fact, she says he has had regard for the humble state of his bondservant. This was her personal perspective on herself. There's no queen of heaven here. There's no um, mother of God in the theological sense. Mary never saw herself being the grand intercessor or, or the great queen mother who would be prayed to. That, that, that would have been so foreign to her mind. She, she couldn't have comprehended it. Because she said, I'm, I'm a humble bondservant. Bondservant is a polite way of saying, I'm a slave. I have no standing. She was a, a woman in first century Jewish society. She had no rights or privileges. She was essentially, she needed to be married because without that, she had no way of support. She, she had no options in her life. She didn't see herself as, as somebody better than everybody else. In fact, she saw herself, this whole business about God choosing her was remarkable to her because who was she? But God has had regard for the humble state of his servant. See, it turns out that a humble bondservant is precisely what God was looking for. Why? Moses was raised in a palace. He was educated in the best academia of his day. And he was given a role that that was necessary preparation for. Have you ever wondered why Moses was raised in a palace, but Jesus was born in a stable? It's because 
Moses was going to lead a nation, Jesus was going to touch the simplest among us. He wasn't going to reach down from a throne. In fact, he left his throne and came to a stable so that he could communicate grace to the least of us. Why do you think those shepherds were invited to the stable that night? Because in ancient culture, shepherds were perpetually unclean. They did work that disqualified them from attendance at the temple. They often had to touch dead animals or, or lame or, or wounded animals. They often had to, to, to be involved in the, the dirtier parts of, uh, of, of animal husbandry. They were perpetually ostracized. They were the lowest of the low. That is precisely why Jesus was born to a humble bondservant. Because from the very beginning, there was no one below Jesus. You say, how can God reach down to me? He already did. And he reached down to you and to me by becoming even less than us so that we could hear his voice. We could see God in the flesh and we could know that he's here for us. She says, all generations will call me blessed. She doesn't mean she alone will be blessed. She means all generations will see the work of God that's happening through her, and they'll understand that God is keeping his promise, and he's making himself known. He's making a way for us to be forgiven of our sin. Well, after these Christmas remarks, we have 12 years of silence. But if you go to Luke chapter 2, verse 48, we find her speaking again. This is when Jesus is 12 years old and he goes to the temple. And as they're traveling home from their trip to the temple, Joseph and Mary eventually get to the camp, where the place they're going to camp on their way home. And that's the first time they realize that Jesus is not with them. And so they leave the group that they're traveling with and they turn back and walk all the way back to Jerusalem only to find Jesus remarkably teaching in the temple. And when they go and find him in verse 48 of Luke chapter 2, it says, when Joseph and Mary saw him, they were bewildered. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. It was an expression of consternation. Why have you done this to us? What were you thinking? Listen, if you've never had your parents say something to you like that, then I, I don't even know how you grew up. What were you thinking? But what it tells us is that Mary is just like us. She did not always understand the purposes of the one that had grown beneath her heart. Son, what were you thinking? I find that a very human expression. If we go over to John chapter 2, we find that now with Jesus um, all grown, Mary is there at the inauguration of his ministry, 
with a prayer of intercession. In John chapter 2, Jesus and his disciples are invited to a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And in this chapter, verse 3, it says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, that may sound like a, a statement of fact, but it is really a prayer of intercession. I think it's because Mary recognized in Jesus that he was the one who could redeem any situation. Understand, he's, he's, he has had no miracles yet. He's had no, no significant public ministry yet. And yet Mary already understands that he is the Messiah, that God is going to change the, the trajectory of the human race through him. And she comes to him as a statement of fact and says, they have no wine. We don't hear in those words, those, those black and white words, we don't hear the request, but the request is implied. Jesus, they have a problem. You're the only one that can answer it. How many times have we prayed about a thousand different things with the implication that Jesus, I don't have any way out of this situation. Only you can be the solution. She brings that prayer to Jesus. They have no wine. But then she immediately follows it up with a word of commendation. I love this. She says they have no wine in verse 3. Verse 4, Jesus said to her, what business do you have with me, woman? Now that seems kind of harsh. My hour has not yet come. But you need to understand, biblically speaking, that that, ref, that word woman doesn't have the harshness that it has the connotation for here. Um, if, we, if we speak of somebody and use the term, you know, what are you thinking, woman? It, it has a harshness in our culture, but it's not, it doesn't have that here. But what he is doing is he is suggesting, um, what is it that you're thinking of me? What, what, are, you, what are you suggesting? And I find this so typical of a mother. She doesn't answer his question. She doesn't say, well, I was just, I was just thinking maybe possibly that you could potentially, you know, do something here. He says, my hour has not yet come. But then there's verse 5. And his mother said to the servants, whatever he tells you, do it. You see, whatever he says for you to do, go do that. She's the one who presents him on the occasion of his first demonstration of superhuman authority. When he, I wonder, in my sanctified imagination, I wonder if we can't take those words off the page and see it with a twinkle in his eye. Jesus, they have no wine. Woman, what are you thinking? You know it's not time for that. And she smiles back at him as he's smiling to her. And she goes to the servants and she says, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. What a remarkable testimony. Can you imagine if we just lived our lives in such a way that Jesus, we understood Jesus to be the solution to every problem. And we just tell the people around us, whatever Jesus in instructs you to do, you should just do that. Wow. Well, here's the thing. 
she has all kinds of responses here, a mosaic of, uh, of, of humanity. I can see myself in every one of these places. But then she's going to show us the fragility of God's people. Go back to her song in Luke chapter 1. Mary is not only an obedient maiden, she's not only the sorrowing mother, she's also the one who does not fully understand everything that God is up to. She intervenes often when she ought to keep silent. She interferes and tries to thwart the purposes of God. Sometimes she goes to Jesus and pleads the ties of family affection when she should stand back and live by faith. I find myself connecting with Mary in remarkable ways because throughout her life, she was the strongest of the faithful and the profoundest of the faithless. Jesus, the crowds are not with you. You should just come home. You should just, she, th that wasn't from Mary. You remember that scene. She sends his, uh, she sends his brothers Go tell him that this is not going to turn out well. The crowds are not with him. Tell him to come home, to just be with family. And Jesus' response is, that is not what I came for. I'm not going to hide in my mother's basement. I'm here specifically to see this all the way to the end. You see, Mary... She didn't always understand. She wasn't this super divine saint that, that, that was the queen of heaven. She was just like us. She was following the line that her faith led her down. But there were times when, when she just didn't get it. That's exactly who we are. We are solid in our faith. We believe the Word of God. We believe that Jesus is who He says He is. We believe that He's coming back. We believe these things. And yet, some days we wake up and we go, God, are you really there? It is who we are. And Mary gives us that connection point because she, she uh, embodies this process but I want, that's where I want us to go back to the song. We read verses 46 through 49, but now I want to read 51 through 53. Listen to this, or 50 through 53. It says, And his mercy is to generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. He has given help to his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. What's happening here is that she understands one thing clearly, and that is that through her, through the coming of the Messiah, God has reversed human standards. He reorders human priority. Now, she forgets that sometimes, just like we do. But what she's confessing here is that God was turning the world on its head in the coming of Jesus Christ. Kings are going to be pulled down. The humble are going to be raised up. Everything that God has done in Jesus Christ is revolutionary. It's the opposite of what the world does. The world lives by power, by wealth. 
Jesus walked in humility and trust. The world is all about domination and control. Jesus taught us submission and peace. One of the strangest verses to me in the whole Bible is in the letters of John where he says this, young men, you have overcome evil with good. That is not the way the world works. We say things like, well, you got to fight fire with fire. You got to meet them uh, on the battlefield of their choosing. We have to, we have to, sometimes you got to get your hands dirty to, to, to win the day. No, no. The strangest reality is the fact that we overcome evil with good. Jesus is the model of that. Mary is telling us in advance that this is going to be revolutionary. God is going to take the world and turn it upside down. His kingdom operates differently than the world in which we live. And we have to decide which citizenship we're loyal to. Our citizenship in this world or our citizenship in his kingdom. Because we actually live differently than the world because God has revolutionized our lives. We are both obedient and interfering. We are perceptive and yet dull. We are faithful and hypocritical, all of us. And yet Mary confesses that she is not worthy to be chosen by God. That is not false humility. That is simply understanding the human situation because the reality is none of us were worthy to be chosen by God. And yet, in the same way that she was integral to God's eternal redemptive purpose, you are not just being saved to be swept out of the wickedness of this world. You are integral to the unfolding drama of redemption in this generation. You are not saved accidentally as an afterthought. You are not allowed to be a Christian because, because God just had an extra spot in heaven and he, and he just gave it to you. He came to us as humble slaves, not overestimating our own status, and he chose us to do something extraordinary, to be a part of this revolutionary movement that came to be called Christianity. That's our encouragement. At Christmas, we see our own unworthiness before God, but we also see how he can use us to accomplish great and mighty things in our generation. Christmas is the call to remember that I don't have much to offer and God still picked me to do something great. Let me show you where this story ends. The 19th chapter of John, in verse 25, we find Jesus on the cross, suffering beyond words. And in John chapter 19, beginning in verse 25, it says, Now beside the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. 
So when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Here's the fascinating conclusion to the Mary story. Mary stood at the head of the manger and she stood at the foot of the cross. And Christmas is the annual reminder that that is precisely where we are called to stand. The head of the manger, celebrating the incarnation, God became flesh and lived among us. But we also stand at the foot of the cross in amazement that what he did allows us to be forgiven and transformed. When you say Merry Christmas over the next couple of weeks to people, let the very phrase Merry Christmas paint the entire story from an angel coming to a simple teenage girl and that girl walking the life of faith all the way to the foot of the cross. And remember that Easter is our reminder that our story of faith is also unfolding from the moment God came to us and made himself known until the moment that we see Jesus as he is because we will be like him. In the name of Jesus, Merry Christmas.